Welcome to the Mechanics Bell, a podcast of stories from history. I am the researcher, writer, and host, Robert McNamara. In the introduction to the first episode of this podcast, I spoke a little about how Google's search algorithms can sometimes limit what gets published on the web. To begin this second episode, I'm going to talk a little about how the internet has made a vast amount of historical material abundantly available in the form of vintage newspapers. It used to be that if you wanted to do research using old newspapers, you could do it, but it meant going to a library and reading old newspaper issues on microfilm. It could be difficult and the work could go pretty slowly. But now it's possible to access a great many vintage newspapers over the internet. You can sit in your own house and read the news exactly as people read it 100 or 200 years ago. There are a few different services you can use to access vintage newspapers, but the one I would most strongly recommend is free for anyone to use at the website of the Library of Congress. It's called Chronicling America, and you can find it in two seconds by Googling that phrase, Chronicling America. The archive has a huge amount of material. It's now up to 19 million pages. There's a search function, which can be a little clumsy, but it works pretty well once you get used to it. A nice feature of the archive is that there's a way to copy the URL of a screenshot of an article and you can share that link by pasting it into an email or posting it to Twitter or Facebook. So if you find something really interesting, you can easily pass it along to your friends. Or if you're doing serious research, you can save the link for future reference. You can also download a page of a newspaper as a PDF file. If you wanna save pages from the New York Tribune to read later on your phone or computer, go for it. The newspapers at the Library of Congress site are from all over the U.S., from small towns to the largest cities. The earliest are from 1777, and the latest are from the end of 1963. There are scans for more than 3,000 newspapers, but that doesn't mean they've got every issue. Sometimes they just have a few years, but sometimes it's quite a long span, even decades in some cases. Some of the most comprehensive collections of issues are from the New York Tribune, the New York Herald, and the Washington Evening Star. Those papers are particularly interesting as their available issues begin before the Civil War and stretch into the early 20th century. The Washington Evening Star actually continues through World War II and into the early 1960s. So you can read coverage of political news from the administration of Franklin Pierce to that of Lyndon Johnson. What I would encourage you to do is visit the Chronicling America site and just browse around. Look for papers from wherever you live or look for specific events. For instance, if you are curious to know what people in New York were reading about the Battle of Antietam, it's all there for you in the issues of the New York Herald or the New York Tribune. Even if you know a lot about the Civil War, 
it can be surprising to read the actual issues of the newspapers and see how much information was being transmitted from reporters in the field back to their newspapers. If you spend any time browsing around in newspaper archives, you start to get a feel for how different newspapers were in the 1800s. In the 1840s, you'll start to see newspapers bragging that they carry news brought to them by telegraph. A reliable transatlantic cable wasn't working until 1866. And in the decades before that, newspapers relied on news from Europe to arrive by ship. There are often headlines proclaiming they have the latest news brought by whichever ship just arrived. The publisher of the New York Herald, James Gordon Bennett, operated a small fleet of fast sailboats that would race out of New York Harbor to intercept incoming ships, take the packets of news from England or the continent, and race back to a dock in Manhattan. There were wagons waiting to speed the news onward to the newspaper's offices at the corner of Fulton and Nassau Streets in Lower Manhattan. The news brought by ships was often needed by business people who imported or exported goods. You may have needed to know, for instance, the price of cotton in London. I've noticed little articles in the New York Herald in the 1840s cautioning people not to make business decisions based on rumors spread by speculators. The warning is along the lines of, wait until you read the latest foreign news in the pages of the Herald, and then you'll know it's accurate. I recently happened upon a drama that played out in the pages of the New York Herald in October 1846. While researching something else entirely, I noticed that the newspaper published a small item that the steamship Great Britain was late to arrive in New York on a voyage from Liverpool. That was on October 6th. I checked the next day's issue, and again, the Great Britain was late. I became interested as I happened to know that the Great Britain was a significant ship. It was designed and built by the great engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel, and it was a very innovative ship for its day. So now I was really interested, and I kept checking issues of the New York Herald from October 1846. Each day, the mentions of the Great Britain became more alarming. On October 15th, there was a notice that the ship must have been on her way from England for 23 days. The newspaper said this was a cause of great anxiety. At first, it seemed people were concerned simply because the news from Europe would be arriving late and that could affect business. But after a while, it was obvious people were thinking the ship might have sunk. At that time, of course, there was no radio. Sometimes ships headed out into the North Atlantic and were simply never heard from again. On occasion, ships arrived very late after being damaged in storms. But a late ship was always distressing. Finally, after two weeks of increasingly anxious notices every day in the newspaper, there was a front-page story on October 22nd. Another ship had brought the news that the Great Britain had run aground in Ireland. Luckily, no lives had been lost. The explanation that emerged later was that officers of the ship had somehow mistaken one lighthouse for another, 
which caused them to steer the ship into a shallow bay on the coast of Ireland where it ran aground. Incidentally, the Great Britain was later refloated, had a long and complicated career at sea, and after many years of neglect, it was eventually restored. The ship people in New York were very worried about, for a few weeks, 175 years ago, is now an attraction at the harbor in Bristol, England. You can even buy tickets on the internet to visit it. And the story illustrates the serendipity you can experience while reading very old newspapers. I was not expecting to find a mention of the Great Britain when I was looking up whatever it was in an old issue of the New York Herald. Yet I found myself becoming fascinated by the drama of the missing ship. And there I was, just as people had done in 1846, checking the next day's newspaper to find out what had happened. That's the amazing thing about old newspapers. You will stumble upon some astounding stories you never knew about, and you get to experience them just as readers did many, many years ago. Here's a story about Abraham Lincoln that received only a little attention in the newspapers when it happened. And there's a good chance it's a Lincoln story you've never heard. If you know anything about America in the 1800s, you'll know something about a neighborhood in Lower Manhattan called the Five Points. It was named innocently enough. Four streets converged at the same place, creating a complicated intersection, hence the name the Five Points. That name spread far and wide as it became a neighborhood known for gangs, saloons, prostitutes, thieves, and general mayhem. The area became so well known that when Charles Dickens made his first trip to America in 1842, he took the time to see the Five Points for himself. He later wrote about it in his book, American Notes for General Circulation. The great author was shocked by what he saw. As he famously described the five points, quote, all that is loathsome, drooping, and decayed is here. A few years ago, in the course of doing some research about Abraham Lincoln and his run for the presidency in 1860, I came across a mention that Lincoln had also visited the five points. That sounded very weird to me. I could see Dickens caring about the place as he was interested in poverty and criminals and gritty urban conditions. But Lincoln? Why would he want to see the five points? The mention I first saw said he went there while in New York City to give his famous speech at Cooper Union. That part of it also didn't make a lot of sense. When I was in college, I became familiar with a famous bar in New York, McSorley's Old Ale House. The bar opened in 1854, and it's literally around the corner from Cooper Union, where Lincoln spoke at the end of February in 1860. There is an enduring legend that Lincoln had a beer at McSorley's before walking around the block to give his speech at Cooper Union. 
that story isn't taken too seriously by anyone who knows much about Lincoln, because first of all, Lincoln was not known to drink. But more importantly, Lincoln had traveled for days to get to New York, and giving that particular speech was incredibly important to him. And there's really no reason to believe he would have visited an alehouse and downed a mug of beer before facing a very important audience in New York. As I've always believed the Lincoln visit to McSorley's story wasn't true, I assume the mention of Lincoln visiting the Five Points was also just wrong. But guess what? It is true. Lincoln did visit the most notorious neighborhood in America, and it occurred less than a year before he was elected president. And his visit did happen as part of the same trip to the East that took him to Cooper Union. In fact, it was, in a way, the culmination of the trip, and it seemed meaningful to him. Lincoln's visit to the Five Points capped off a series of travels that directly led to him becoming the Republican nominee for president a few months later, in May 1860, and being elected president in November 1860. Back in the fall of 1859, Lincoln wasn't technically running for president. And when people suggested that he should run for president, he would make self-effacing comments and tell them to stop saying such things. But he was ambitious and was obviously thinking he might make a presidential run. So he embarked on something of a pre-campaign tour. If we talk about Lincoln's tour the way we talk about a band being on tour, He first went on tour in late 1859, and Lincoln Tour 59 had three distinct legs, to the east, north, and south of his home state of Illinois. In mid-September 1859, Lincoln gave speeches over the course of two days in Ohio, followed by a fast stop in Indiana to speak before heading home to Springfield. At the very end of September, Lincoln headed northward to Wisconsin, where he gave speeches over the course of two days. And he finished up his 1859 travels with a trip to the Kansas Territory, which began at the very end of November. And then after a break for the holidays and some serious preparation for what became his Cooper Union speech, he would hit the road again. In February 1860, he traveled to New York City and then traveled by trains through a few New England states on what amounted to another leg of his tour. When Lincoln embarked on these travels in late 1859, he was a private citizen, but he had received some national attention the year previously when he ran for a U.S. Senate seat in Illinois. His opponent in that 1858 race was the incumbent, Senator Stephen Douglas. The two men, Lincoln and Douglas, had been rivals in Illinois going back 20 years. They had often been on the opposite side of the issues, and with slavery the most important issue in the late 1850s, the two men in that Senate race held their famous series of debates. They met seven times in various outdoor settings across Illinois, generally holding their debates before enormous crowds. The debates were really dueling speeches. 
the format was that the first male would speak for an hour, then the second male would respond for an hour and a half, and then the first man would have one half hour for a rebuttal. Lincoln did well in the series of debates. However, U.S. senators at that time were not chosen by popular vote. The state legislators voted on the senators, which was the law until the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, which provides for direct election of senators, was ratified in 1913. That contest in Illinois in 1858 ended with the Illinois state legislature choosing Douglas over Lincoln. At that point, Lincoln's career in politics could have been over, but the press attention he received in the race against Douglas would naturally be helpful to him if he tried to run for president in 1860. He had gotten the attention of Republican activists in faraway places. It's probably good just for clarity to mention that the Republican Party had only been formed a few years earlier, and its purpose was to oppose the spread of slavery into new territories and states. The Democratic Party at the time was generally pro-slavery, or in the North, not terribly concerned with slavery. A lot of business people in the North benefited from slavery in indirect ways, and they tended to be Democrats. So the parties, before the great realignment of the 1960s, were essentially the reverse of today. In simplified terms, the Republicans were the liberals and the Democrats were the conservatives. The pro-democratic press at the time also gave some attention to Lincoln, but mainly to mock and criticize him. Here is a quote from the front page of the New Orleans Daily Crescent on September 20th, 1859. Quote, Lincoln is the dirtiest and meanest abolitionist alive. There is not an emotion of his heart, brain, or soul that is not unutterably filthy. Lincoln might have laughed at that. He was no stranger to negative press. And as someone with a lot of experience in politics, Lincoln in that fall of 1859 surely knew the value of getting out on the road and generating some positive news. He had to show he wasn't the radical monster or filthy abolitionist portrayed in some newspapers, and he had to show that the loss to Douglas hadn't completely ended his political career. In October, before his visit to Kansas, Lincoln had received a letter from New York inviting him to speak at Plymouth Church in Brooklyn. The church was the domain of the famous minister, Henry Ward Beecher. The invitation said Lincoln was free to speak on whatever subject he chose. Lincoln accepted the offer and made plans to visit New York. He had been to New York City before. In 1857, he visited with his family on a summer vacation trip that also took them to Niagara Falls. Lincoln never recorded what he did in New York that summer, but it is believed he saw popular sites like Barnum's Museum. The trip in early 1860, however, was to be much more serious. Giving a speech in New York was an enormous opportunity for Lincoln. He knew he had to rise to the occasion, and he came up with a very ambitious plan. 
He in intended to dramatically make his case against the spread of slavery by proving on stage, backed up with some careful historical research, that the federal government had the right to restrict slavery. He got to work in Illinois doing research in the State Library in Springfield. What Lincoln focused on was examining the voting records of men who had debated and signed the U.S. Constitution. Some of them, naturally, went on to hold elective office in Congress, and a number of them had voted for laws which gave the federal government the right to regulate slavery. For instance, Congress had outlawed slavery north of the Ohio River as part of what was called the Northwest Ordinance. And some of the men who voted for that had signed the Constitution. In total, Lincoln's research proved that of the 39 men who signed the Constitution, 21 of them had later voted in one form or another to regulate slavery in America. So claims that the founders saw no role for the federal government in regulating slavery were just factually wrong. Lincoln had to take five trains over four days to get to New York City. When he arrived, he discovered that the venue of the speech had changed. It would be at the Cooper Institute, known today as Cooper Union, an educational institution founded by industrialist Peter Cooper. The change was partly due to the weather forecast, as it was believed travel to Brooklyn via ferries would be impacted by an expected winter storm. On the day of his speech, Lincoln walked up Broadway with some local Republicans, and he did something that would later be important. He went to Matthew Brady's gallery on Broadway and posed for a portrait. The resulting photograph of a standing and clean-shaven Lincoln would become the basis for woodcut illustrations widely used in the press during the upcoming political campaign. In that era, newspapers and magazines did not have the ability to print photographs. So illustrations based on what came to be known as the Cooper Union portrait would be the first and perhaps the only visual image most Americans would have had of Lincoln during the 1860 campaign. That evening, Lincoln went on stage at Cooper Union after being introduced by William Cullen Bryant who is remembered today as a poet. Yet he was also the editor of the New York Evening Post, at that time a respectable newspaper. In the audience were other powerful editors, including Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune and Henry J. Raymond of the New York Times. The pressure on Lincoln must have been enormous. He was on the home turf of Senator William Seward, who many people considered the front-runner to win the Republican nomination for president that year. The hall was packed. Lincoln had to make a good showing, or his political career really might end for good right there in a Manhattan auditorium. According to people who attended the speech, Lincoln started off a little unsteady, but he quickly found his footing. He went on to deliver a speech that gripped the attentive audience. The text of the speech, taken down by stenographers, soon appeared in the New York newspapers and circulated widely to papers in other cities. 
The speech, by any standards, was a huge success. Over time, it has become known as the speech that made Lincoln president. Lincoln had intended, in the days following the speech, to travel to New England to visit his son Robert, who was attending prep school in Exeter, New Hampshire. Local Republican clubs in the region, excited by Lincoln's speech in New York, invited him to speak at local events. His trip to see his son turned into yet another leg of his pre-presidential campaign tour. The New England trip helped Lincoln solidify whatever support he had in a part of the country where he wasn't very well known. Lincoln spoke in towns in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. He was greeted by enthusiastic crowds. Some of his events were mocked in the opposition press for being poorly organized, but that was probably because the tour was being improvised so quickly. Lincoln spent about a week and a half in New England. He arrived back in New York City late on a Saturday night, March 10, 1860. On the following afternoon, Lincoln could have done anything, and that is when he went to visit the Five Points. Lincoln never wrote about his visit to the Five Points, so the only accounts of his visit come from recollections of other people, some of them collected many years later, but we know the basics of the story. On that Sunday, Lincoln's plan was to attend church services and meet up with a Republican activist, Hiram Barney. Barney was married to a woman named Susan Tappan. If you know about abolitionists in New York, you'll recognize her last name. Her father was Louis Tappan, and Louis and his brother Arthur Tappan were merchants who financed abolitionist causes going back to the 1830s. The Tappan brothers were denounced throughout the South, occasionally being burned in effigy. Even in New York, they were often targeted. In her youth, Susan Tappan's family had to flee from their house in Lower Manhattan in 1834 during what was called the Abolitionist Riot. The house was ransacked and most of the family's furniture was burned in the street. Hiram Barney accompanied Lincoln to the Lower East Side, where they visited the Five Points House of Industry a school administered by social reformers, including Barney. I found an article about the House of Industry in an issue of the New York Times from early 1861, which gave the address of Barney's law office as a place to send donations for the House of Industry. On the Sunday afternoon they visited, it is known that Barney and Lincoln toured the six-story school which offered rooms, meals, and practical education to poor children of the Five Points. Lincoln met teachers and children and sat in on a Sunday school class. The director of the institution, Samuel Halliday, gave Lincoln a copy of a book he had just published, The Lost and Found, or Life Among the Poor. Following the visit to the House of Industry, Barney invited Lincoln to his home, where they had tea with Barney's wife, Susan Tappan Barney. I wish we could eavesdrop on that conversation as a member of the Tappan family had tea with Abraham Lincoln. The next morning, March 12, 1860, 
The New York Tribune published a small item mentioning that Lincoln had attended two churches on Sunday morning. It did not mention his visit to the Five Points. It did mention his tour in New England and said he would be leaving for home that day by way of the Erie Railroad. The one-paragraph article concluded with this sentence, quote, Mr. Lincoln has done a good work and made many warm friends during this visit. After Lincoln received the Republican nomination two months later, an account of his visit to the Five Points, attributed to an anonymous teacher at the House of Industry, appeared in the New York Tribune on May 30th, 1860. The account in the newspaper said, Our Sunday school in the Five Points was assembled one Sabbath morning a few months since, when I noticed a tall and remarkable-looking man enter the room and take a seat among us. He listened with fixed attention to our exercises, and his countenance manifested such genuine interest that I approached him and suggested that he might be willing to say something to the children. He accepted the invitation with evident pleasure, and coming forward began a simple address, which at once fascinated every little hearer, and hushed the room into silence. His language was strikingly beautiful, and his tones musical with intense feeling. The little faces around would droop into sad conviction as he uttered sentences of warning and would brighten into sunshine as he spoke cheerful words of promise. Once or twice he attempted to close his remarks, but the imperative shout of go on, oh do go on, would compel him to resume. As I looked upon the gaunt and sinewy frame of the stranger, and marked his powerful head and determined features, now touched into softness by the impressions of the moment, I felt an irrepressible curiosity to learn something more about him, and when he was quietly leaving the room, I begged to know his name. He courteously replied, It is Abraham Lincoln from Illinois. That very laudatory story in the New York Tribune appeared on page six, beside other political news, so it wasn't particularly prominent, but it seems to have served a purpose. The day the article was published, May 30th, was an ordinary Wednesday, but it was less than two weeks after Lincoln received the nomination of the Republican National Convention in Chicago. And looking at the newspaper, it's evident there were still some bad feelings among supporters of Senator William Seward. Right next to the story about Lincoln visiting the children at the House of Industry was an article in which Horace Greeley, the newspaper's editor and publisher, defended himself against an accusation from Seward. After being denied the nomination at the convention, Seward told a rival editor, Henry J. Raymond of the New York Times, that Greeley had been working to undermine him. Greeley denied the charge. I wonder if Greeley, who was a friend of Hiram Barney, had heard about Lincoln visiting the Five Points. 
And he decided to publish a version of the story to portray Lincoln as a charitable soul, not a crafty political manipulator who had wrested the nomination away from New York's powerful senator, William Seward. In any event, the article attributed to a teacher from the House of Industry was republished in a number of newspapers throughout the North during the next few weeks. And then the story of Lincoln and the Five Points was more or less forgotten. That Sunday afternoon in New York in March doesn't seem to have been referred to again during the 1860 campaign, or even during Lincoln's time as president. Perhaps that makes sense. In the 1800s, the conditions in places like the Five Points were not the concern of the federal government or the president. A government social safety net was still many years in the future. So Lincoln's visit to America's most notorious slum had no effect on his administration, except perhaps in the matter of personnel. Lincoln appointed Hiram Barney to a plum political patronage job it made him the collector of the Port of New York. In that post, Barney oversaw the collection of import duties. The story about Lincoln at the Five Points was essentially forgotten for a long time, and then it started turning up in books of anecdotes about Lincoln published decades later. In the early 1900s, an embellished version of the story emerged in a book titled The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. In this version, one of Lincoln's neighbors in Springfield visited him after his return from the trip to New York and heard the story about visiting the Five Points and the House of Industry. In the neighbor's telling of the story, Lincoln had told the children about his own impoverished childhood and encouraged them to be hopeful about their own futures. It is entirely possible that Lincoln imparted that message to the children at the House of Industry, but we really don't know exactly what he said. What I find striking about his visit to the Five Points is simply that it happened at all. Lincoln's trip to the East Coast had been a remarkable success by any standard. His speech at Cooper Union had made him an overnight political star in New York and greatly elevated his chances to be president and his swing through New England had gone very well. Following all that, as he spent a Sunday in New York, Lincoln could have celebrated his recent triumphs. After all, he had just spent what may have been the greatest two weeks of his life. Or had he wanted to capitalize even further on his successful trip, he could have met up with any number of people who might have propelled his political ambitions. Yet he chose to spend the afternoon visiting impoverished children who could do absolutely nothing to help him. He found that the most important use of his time in New York City, and that tells us something about Lincoln. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mechanic's Bell. I have lots of notes for upcoming episodes, and they will be coming along. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast through whichever app you happen to use. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I can be found at History1800s, where I will be posting some links related to this episode. Talk to you soon.